You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Amen. Please be seated. Now, Andy's going to come up uh, and answer one question for us, but I want to introduce it as he gets ready, and it's, can we rely on the Bible? Um, The Bible itself says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And I want to just introduce this. What we're going to do is Andy's going to speak, he says, for 22 minutes. So I've told him to do 25 because he speaks quite fast. So, (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, why, why would we trust the Bible? And the reason it's really important to understand and grasp that, I know that some of you go, well, of course we trust the Bible, it's the Word of God. Yeah, but if you haven't thought about it, then one of the problems you're going to have is this, that a lot of our young people, and in my view, um, if you ask them number one reason for the decline in the church in Scotland over the past 150 years, it came about because people like me, ministers, stopped believing the Bible. And sadly, I have to say, by the way, it was the free church that imported German higher criticism into the body of Christ in this country. Not just the free church, but we, we were largely responsible for it. And there were all kinds of doubts cast about the Bible. And we still believed the gospel, and we still believed in Jesus, and we still believed the main doctrines. But the, the authority of the Word of God was undermined. And I think that has become a cancer in the church and it has been very, very destructive. That's at a macro level. At a micro level, I see it in lots of ways. And I would just simply say this, that um, if I can't trust what God has said, then, uh, you know, we're really, really struggling. The Word of God is, as the Scripture says, it's a lamp, it's a light. And I also remember what Jesus said, that uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, it is important that we have the foundation of that right, and it's not that we do it all the time, but it's right for us to ask just simply, how can we trust the Bible? I'm going to ask Andy to answer that one question, then we're going to sing, and then there'll be an opportunity for a sort of Q&A for a short while, Um, so be prepared for that as well. But Andy, thank you so much for being willing to do this. I've just tweeted, ministers like me stopped believing the Bible. David Robertson, St. Peter's Free Church, Dundee. We'll see what happens. Wait for the, uh, the angry letters uh, to come in. And uh, it's funny, actually, uh, the comment about speaking fast. Some of you may know that uh, for seven years, my wife and I lived in Toronto, in, uh, in Canada, uh, where, I, uh, where I worked for an organization called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And what, often what happened over there is people would refer to the fact that I, and in fact many British people, uh, not just the English, the Scots as well, speak fast. And I learned this defense. I would say to my American and Canadian friends, the reason that in, in the UK uh, we speak fast is for two reasons. One, we, make it, we think it makes us sound sophisticated. And secondly, it means to American audiences, by the time the Americans spot the mistake, we'll be half a mile down the track and it'll be too late to do anything about it. But this evening, David has asked me to talk on this question of why trust the Bible. I think that's a fascinating uh, topic. In fact, I love talking about the Bible. 
Because whether or not one believes it, the Bible is a fascinating book. It certainly had an incredible influence. I mean, I often point out to my skeptical friends that whether or not you believe the Bible, it has been, since records began, the best-selling book. In fact, it's been the best-selling book every year, except for one year in the mid-2000s. I think it was 2005 when whichever Harry Potter book it was came out that year, pushed the Bible into number two. For one year, then Harry Potter was gone to do whatever Harry Potter does, and the Bible popped back up to number one. The Bible has also been a tremendous influence on law and uh, philosophy and art and music and literature. Much of that, uh, not just here in the West, but globally, has drawn upon the Bible. The Bible has had this incredible influence. Yet despite that potency, despite that influence, despite how important the Bible is to us as Christians, of course, many people today want to ignore or uh, rubbish or denigrate or uh, cast off the Bible. I have lost count of how many times I've been asked by skeptical friends, atheist friends, Muslim friends, you know, why, why trust the Bible? What conceivable reason uh, can you give for it? And I have many skeptical friends who think the Bible is a load of rubbish, that it can't be taken seriously. Now, of course, for those of us who are Christians here this evening, uh, you know, we have plenty of reasons to trust the Bible, don't we? We have the, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. We have the claims that the Bible makes about itself to be living and, uh, and active. But, of course, none of those things cut any ice with a skeptic. If you try and say to an atheist friend, well, you should trust the Bible because of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, probably isn't going to actually get you very far because they do not have that. So that raises the question, if you are talking about your faith with a friend or a colleague or a neighbor who's not a Christian, and I hope you have those conversations. As Christians, we can't afford just to talk to other Christians if we're going to see the gospel spread. Then what, what reasons can we give to our non-Christian friends to at least consider Scripture seriously? What reasons can we give? Well, tonight, I want to give you four reasons that you can use uh, with people who are utter skeptics and complete doubters. And notice here something interesting. When the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is talking to Gentile audiences, he doesn't say, well, believe in Jesus because of, Old Testament, because of the Old Testament prophecies about him. They don't believe the Bible. He has to use a method that connects with where they are at. And it's the same with us if we're going to share our faith with our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues who do not take Scripture seriously. I want to give you four reasons this evening why we can trust the Bible, why we can believe it has the hallmarks of history, and why we have every reason, therefore, to take the Bible's message very seriously. So, reason number one, straight out of the gate. Reason one, we can trust the Bible, the manuscripts. You see, it's important, my friends, if we are going to trust the Bible, that we need to know whether the text of the Bible has reliably reached us. If uh, the first Christians, if the Apostle Paul uh, and uh, the Apostles wrote down the Gospels and the New Testament accurately, but it's been lost over time, lost in the midst of time, then, of course, we have a problem. And our skeptical friends like to press on this point. For the last 20 years or so, I have had discussion after discussion with Muslims about my faith. Um, I love engaging my Muslim friends in conversations about faith. But one of the chief problems, one of the chief uh, attacks that Islam makes on Christianity is Muslims will tell you that the Bible has been corrupted. And therefore, you should read the Quran and reject the Bible. Does that claim stand up? Well, no, it doesn't. 
simple answer is that we can be very, very confident about the biblical text that you have in front of you this evening. Not least because we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible, some dating from the second century right down to the Middle Ages. In fact, if you count them up, we have over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible, uh, many of which predate the invention of the printing press. Uh, Hundreds of ancient papyri and thousands of early translations into other languages. One of the interesting things is almost as soon as the church has begun, back there in the first century, Christians are translating the scriptures uh, into other languages. Now, many of those manuscripts are staggeringly early. On the screen behind me is a picture of a, uh, a manuscript called the John Rylands Fragment, or known as P52 to scholars. Scholars love to invent little acronyms for things because it makes them feel important rather than use words that ordinary human beings can understand. Um, that document there dates to about AD 120. That is older even than David Robertson. Um, Or we might turn to something like Codex Sinaiticus. That's a complete version of the Bible. It dates to about AD 350. I remember visiting the British Museum uh, a few years ago where you can see this incredibly beautiful document and you can look at it separated from it by just a few millimeters of glass. I remember looking at it really feeling that I was in touch uh, with history, this incredible document. Now, why is it important? Well, it's important because ancient manuscripts like these help us to be incredibly confident that the text you read in your Bible today is the same as was written in the beginning, that it's close to the original, that it hasn't been corrupted, as our Muslim friends say. So we have many, many ancient manuscripts. But if we had a skeptic in the room this evening, you're all far too nice and polite this evening. If we had a a skeptic, a doubter, a Baptist even in the room this evening, um, they might throw a question. They might say, well, hang on a moment. What about textual variants? What are textual variants? Well, textual variants are where uh, manuscripts of the Bible differ. There are places where one manuscript of the Bible says one thing and another manuscript of the Bible says something else. And they exist because these ancient manuscripts that I'm talking to you about were written by scribes uh, using parchment and ink. And of course, when you write things and copy things by hand, mistakes creep in. So... Is that a problem? Does that mean we should, become to, we should start doubting the biblical text and worrying that we can't trust the uh, Bible that we have in front of us? Well, when it comes to textual variants, the more manuscripts you have, the better. The more you have, the better, because then you can compare what's been written and be confident about the text. Let me show you why. Let me use a little contemporary illustration for you. Imagine that one day, perhaps when I'm traveling back from a speaking trip across the Atlantic, I'm at, the, uh, I'm at Heathrow, and uh, my cell phone, my mobile phone, vibrates in my pocket. I pull it out, and it's a text message from my wife. And it says, please buy me some chihuahuas at the... She is clearly struggling with autocorrect on her phone. She and Siri have a love-hate relationship. Um, I wonder what it means, but then a moment later... It buzzes again. This time it says, police, buy me some chocolate at the airport. It buzzes again. This time she says, please fry me some chocolate at the airport. And lastly, in desperation to get her sugar rush, she texts, buy, buy chocolate at airport. Now, those are four different messages. But if I come back from Heathrow Airport without some kind of sugared confectionery and worst case, a small dog under my arm... I am probably going to be sleeping on the sofa. 
I can work out, can't we? You can work out, looking at those four different messages, what the intended message was. And it's the same when it comes to ancient manuscripts of a document like the Bible, because scribes tend to make similar kind of mistakes. They occasionally miss words. They occasionally repeat themselves. They have spelling mistakes. But because we have so many uh, manuscripts, so many versions of the message, we can reconstruct what's been said. But here's a thought experiment. What would happen if we were to destroy every one of those messages apart from the first one? What if we were to destroy all of them and just have that first message? We'd have a problem, wouldn't we? I probably would come back with a small dog from London Terminal 5, and there'd be a very peculiar conversation. Now, if somebody in the early church had had the bright idea of destroying all of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, burning them all apart from just one, we as Christians would have a problem because we could never trust the Bible we have today. Thankfully, nobody in the early church did that. The early Christians preserved manuscripts and turned textual criticism into a science. However, interestingly, that did happen in Islam. Because just about 10 years after the death of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, one of the first rulers of the Muslim empire, the Caliph Uthman, had the bright idea of burning every manuscript of the Quran that disagreed with his official version. It's interesting when I point that out to my Muslim friends who are raising accusations about the Bible. By contrast, Christians have always been open about our manuscripts. We've studied them openly. We've encouraged that. And thus, we can be very, very sure about the text of our Bible today for great reasons. So that's the first reason. You can trust the Bible. The manuscripts are great. You can be sure that the Bible you are reading today matches the original. Here's the second reason, then, you can trust the Bible. That's that its claims are testable historically. See, it's interesting that much of the Bible, especially the Gospels, claims to be historical writing. Listen to these words from the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account. Now what's interesting is Luke is uh, introducing his gospel here in a way that would be very, very familiar to an ancient Greek and Roman audience. Because most ancient Greek and Roman historians began their historical works this way. They would tell you about the eyewitnesses they'd interviewed. They would tell you about the process they went through to write their historical work. And Luke is basically saying, I'm a historian. I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. I've checked out the sources. And that's exciting for us today. Because, because Luke is claiming to write history, we can put him to the test. Now, how can you do that? How can you put an ancient historian like Luke to the test? Well, one thing that scholars like to do when we're confronted by an ancient historical writing, be it one of the Gospels or something else from the same time period, is we like to ask, does the work contain eyewitness testimony? You see, if you really want to know what happened back then in the life of Jesus, we want eyewitnesses, right? We want people who were there and saw what happened, not second-hand or third-hand or fourth-hand accounts of the events. Now, so here's the question. Do the Gospels, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, do they have the signs? Do they have signs and clues that they were written by eyewitnesses, or do they look like they were being made up? How could we, how could we test that? Well, let me give you another contemporary illustration. 
Imagine uh, that during my sermon this evening, I talk about the fact that my, my wife and I have only been living for, in Scotland for, for four weeks, but we already know Scotland incredibly well. We've traveled extensively uh, learning the culture here. And during my, uh, my sort of boasting, I claim to have visited Inverness. Now, perhaps you know Inverness, perhaps you grew up there, maybe your sister lives there. And as I describe my adventures in Inverness, you begin to get slightly suspicious. It appears that I don't completely know what I'm talking about. As I describe the beautiful avenues of palm trees uh, that grow there, you scratch your head and think, is this the Inverness that I know and love? I talk about feeding the, the tame penguins that roam the streets. Again, you begin to think that basically I am making it up as I go along. And eventually you feel you need to challenge my ignorance, raise your hand, and I look very stupid and very embarrassed. My ignorance of the geographical features, my ignorance of the city that you know, gave me away. Well now, what about the Gospels when it comes to, uh, when it comes to geography? It's interesting that the Gospels are packed full of geographical information. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. In fact, they mention, uh, the four Gospels mention dozens and dozens of place names are mentioned in the Gospels. Everything from major cities like Jerusalem and Jericho to tiny one-camel towns like Cana and Nazareth. Interesting, uh, again, a thought experiment. If I asked you this evening to name the capital of most major European countries, if I picked on France, for example, most of you here could get Paris right, especially those of you who have your phones open playing Candy Crush Saga or Pokemon Go, and you could flick across to Google and search. But if I asked you to name me a tiny city, a tiny village, rather, at least 100 miles from Paris with a population of less than 12 people, you would probably struggle unless you had been to such a place on holiday or perhaps grew up in that country. The Gospels, though, get that degree of detail right. They manage other things as well. The Gospels know all kinds of geographical information about first century Palestine. They know distances, how far things are away. They know topography, which towns are in the hills, which towns are on the, on the side of the lake. They know how long it takes to travel between places, both on foot and on horseback. And it goes on and on and on. Huge amounts of geographic information packed into the Gospels, such that that is very hard to explain unless Luke and Matthew and Mark and John are dependent on eyewitness testimony. Now, it's interesting when it comes to our, our own four canonical Gospels in the Bible to compare them with the apocryphal Gospels. Uh, the apocryphal Gospels have been popularized in recent years by books and movies like uh, The Da Vinci Code. And the apocryphal Gospels are fictional accounts of the life of Jesus written in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century, hundreds of years after the life of, uh, of Jesus. And many people were ignorant, ignorant of these uh, until uh, Dan Brown's book uh, popularized them. Now, it's very interesting, though, when you look at those later fictional uh, accounts of the life of Jesus and you compare them with the four Gospels. Something very interesting happens. Our four New Testament Gospels mention about 24 place names are mentioned. As I say, ranging from big places to tiny places. When it comes to the apocryphal Gospels, something interesting, very different is going on. Take the Gospel of Philip. That dates to the third century. That gets just two place names, Jerusalem and Nazareth. Well, Jesus of Nazareth is a bit of a clue. No prizes there. And Jerusalem, biggest city in, uh, in, uh, in first century Israel. Again, any fool could probably have got that one right. But the Gospel of Peter, late second century, doesn't even know where Jesus was born. It mentions just one place name. Startling difference, right? 
And it shows you that our four Gospels in the New Testament are a completely different type of writing. They are concerned with writing history. And because of that, they give you detail, fine detail, that you can actually check out and test. And I say to my skeptical friends all the time, look, dismiss the Gospels if you like, but you need to treat them with the same respect that you would other first century historical writing. And when you test them, they stand up. So we can trust the Gospels because of the manuscripts. We can trust the Gospels because they are historically verifiable. Thirdly, and penultimately, you can trust the Bible uh, and you can trust the Gospel writers in particular because of the test of archaeology. Time and time again, uh, when archaeologists and historians have gone and actually dug in the sands of the Middle East, what they discover as they dig there with their trowels and their excavators matches what we see on the pages of the Bible. Now, if we had time this evening, we could give dozens and dozens of examples. This is a really exciting area, especially if you are a geek like I am. But let me give you just one example of the fun you can have when it comes to the Bible and archaeology. In Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 12, a verse I'm sure all of you have memorized by heart, uh, being good evangelicals, um, we read, never do that joke ever again. Um, (laughs) I'm not two people looking very nervous. Um, In that verse, Luke uses a term, I've highlighted it in white for you. He uses the term proconsul to describe uh, a gentleman called Gallio uh, in in regard to the life of Paul. Now, until about sort of 50 or 60 years ago, skeptics had a lot of fun with this passage. Why? Well, the term proconsul doesn't occur in any other ancient literature. We have lots and lots of Greek literature and Roman literature from the time of Christ. No other ancient Greek or Roman writer mentioned the word proconsul. So skeptics began to argue Luke didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, Luke was making it up, Luke was ignorant, Luke was wrong, Luke wasn't trustworthy, on and on and on it goes. Then in, I think, I believe it was the 1950s, there was an excavation, an archaeological excavation at a place called Delphi in Greece. And uh, they discovered this inscription, but it doesn't come out very well on the PowerPoint, uh, but all of you who can know Latin will translate that instantly. Um, That describes a number of things that are interesting about this inscription. Firstly, it uses the same term as Luke uses. It uses the word proconsul. But it's more interesting than that. It doesn't just use the term proconsul. It uses it and applies it to a particular person, a man called Gallio. Same man, same title, right place, right date. And in fact, that is now known as the Gallio inscription. And it's just one small example of where archaeology proved that one of the New Testament writers, Luke, knew exactly what he was talking about. Now, if we had time, I could show you, as I say, dozens more examples. And archaeology, especially for us who are Christians, doesn't prove the Bible. You can't prove scripture is true just based on archaeology, but it does do something interesting. It does show you, and it shows our skeptical friends, that the places that you can test Scripture, not reliant on faith, not reliant on the the witness of the Holy Spirit that we have as Christians, but on actually digging in the ground. When you put the Bible to the test, it stands up. And so again, I look at my skeptical friends and say, just treat the Bible with the same seriousness and the same respect you would any other ancient history. Read it for yourself with an open mind and see what happens. And that leads to the fourth reason I think we can trust the Bible. And that's it. That, that, that is that it is existentially relevant. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the reasons, perhaps the primary one, uh, I say to my skeptical friends, I think they should take the Bible seriously, is it describes the human condition more accurately and more honestly than any other text I can think of. 
You see, I can go and read the scriptures of other religions, like the Koran. I've been studying the Koran, the scripture of Islam, for about 20 years now. That's my academic background. Well, the Koran uh, speaks quite positively of human beings. It says all we need to do to please God is keep God's commandments. We are basically good, and it's possible to do that. And the world will be a better place. And other religious texts will tell you much the same thing. Problem, of course, is that clashes so badly with the lived reality, doesn't it? With the struggle that every one of us have with being good. In fact, I often say, particularly to university audiences who are a bit younger in life, I tend to say, look, if you think you are basically a good person, you can disprove that very simply. Simply get married. And your spouse will remind you, if she's like mine, on a near daily basis, that you're not a good person and you have all kinds of faults and foibles that need sorting out. Very easy to disprove the idea that you're basically a good person. Yet most religious texts will tell you that you are. On the other hand, the Bible is much more honest. Look at these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, for example. Paul writes, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You see, the Bible's teaching, unique to the Bible among all the religions of the world, the Bible's teaching that human beings were designed for this close, intimate relationship with God, but we are fallen and damaged by sin, is evidence, really, all you need to do to verify that is to look around you at the world and see what sin has done or merely try living up to your own standards for a week and see how long you last. But of course, there's a flip side to this too as well. If the Bible's claims are not true, then there are some consequences that follow, especially if human beings are, as my atheist skeptical friends will tell me, nothing more than random collections of particles. Some things flow from that. A few years ago, uh, one of my very good friends, his name is Craig Evans. He is probably one of the number top five New Testament scholars in the world. And uh, he teaches in Canada. The Canadians are very proud of him. And uh, he was doing a debate with probably one of the leading skeptics of the Bible writing today. The skeptic's name is Bart Ehrman. He has made millions of dollars selling books attacking the Bible. He's a former Christian, and he knows his stuff quite well. And uh, he was debating my friend Craig Evans on the reliability of the Bible at a big, famous Canadian university. Well, it was an interesting debate, but what was most interesting that evening for me was the Q&A afterwards. Because during the Q&A, a university student came to the microphone, and she asked Bart Ehrman, the skeptic, this question. She said, Professor Ehrman, I have a question. If you believe the Bible is a load of rubbish, it's not trustworthy, it's unreliable, it's a, it's a fiction and so forth, words that he had used. She said, tell me, why have you dedicated, why have you spent your academic career studying it? I mean, what a waste of time. Why study it? Bart's answer was really interesting. He looked aghast at this and he looked at the students and said, well, the, the Bible is the, is the foundation of, of music and, and law and literature and culture and civilization. Who would not want to study it. And I think half the audience who were the skeptical ones gave that a kind of round of applause. I remember sitting there thinking, somebody need to, needs to ask the follow-up question. Because my follow-up question, had I a chance to Bart Ehrman, would have been this. If the Bible is, is, as you say, the foundation 
for culture and law and Western civilization. Everything stands upon it. But the Bible is false. Isn't it time, therefore, to recognize that Western civilization that you say you love is based upon a lie and have the courage to throw out all of that culture that you admire and start again? You see, if the vast sweep of the biblical story is true, that has some implications. The Bible is not merely an academic exercise. If the Bible is true, it has some implications. If the Bible's story is true, it means that you and I are not cosmic accidents. If the Bible's story is true, it means there is a God who created and loves each one of you. It means uh, that you are separated from him due to your sin and your rebellion. But it also means if the Bible's story is true, that it tells the story of a God who in Jesus Christ offers to pay the price of that sin and that brokenness so that we may know forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and hope and more importantly of all, know God. If the Bible's story is true, that is what it entails. And of course, I believe that it is true, that the Bible is not myth or legend or fable or pious history, but is actually true history. And because of what God has done in history, you and I and every human being can have a future. Amen. Begin with a simple one, and then I'm going to go to Paul. And then we'll go. Uh, and Andy, also feel free to, to ask anything for me as well. One of the things that I hear quite a lot of people say, and I think it's generally at a fairly superficial level, but they'll say, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly the Gospels, and they're four different contradictory accounts. They're four separate accounts. So surely if this was God's word, then they would all just be exactly the same. So why have we got four different gospel accounts? Why not just one? Or why don't we have four that agree with each other all the time? That's, uh, that's a great question. And I uh, hear it occasionally from uh, my atheist friends, more commonly from my Muslim friends, yeah. actually. And one of the reasons that particularly Muslims ask it is uh, Muslims believe that the Quran, their scripture, was literally written word for word, letter for letter by God himself. Literally that the Quran is copies of this sort of document inscribed by God's own hand in heaven. No human involvement. And where confusion can sometimes come for them is, of course, that is not what Christians believe about the Bible. If anyone here has it in their heads that the Bible is literally a case of, you know, that God grabbed the Apostle Paul's hand and dragged it across the page, that is not the evangelical or the orthodox classical Christian understanding of Scripture. Rather, the Bible teaches very clearly that God breathed through the human authors and uh, use that to produce exactly what he wanted, but work through them. And thus the New Testament, uh, for example, the Gospels represent both the work of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also the work of God coming together to produce what we have today. Now that's important for this reason. If we were to, uh, perhaps in a couple of days' time, have a major controversy about something that was said here this evening, perhaps uh, you know, the, sort of, uh, the, the higher authorities of the free church here, that David here has committed some terrible heresy, uh, nothing is new, um, and what they do, rather too many nervous laughs, um, and what they do is they decide to take an account from every single one of you who are here this evening, and every single one of you are emailed and asked to write down in a couple of hundred words exactly what happened in tonight's evening service, and then they look at those accounts and they find that every single one is word for word, letter for letter, the same. What are they going to conclude? You can talk. It's okay. It's allowed. Somebody said, I think I heard the word collusion or copying. That's what you'd immediately conclude. You'd immediately conclude these aren't independent accounts. This is 
This is copying going on. Somebody's obviously written one account and circulated it around and slapped everybody else's name on it. When we are looking to ascertain what's happened, when we're looking at evidence, either historically or even in a court of law, what we're looking for is accounts that don't contradict one another, but fit together, but also have uniquenesses to them as well. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel. We don't see word for word, letter for letter the same. We see different perspectives on the life and the teaching of Jesus, but not contradiction. And those those overlappings without copying one another tells us uh, it's the kind of thing we'd be looking for when we're looking for uh, historical reports rather than people merely inventing and copying from one another. And one of the things that's been actually quite interesting, some work that's been done very, very recently uh, by one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world, uh, one of my colleagues actually, is uh, one of my friends is based at an American university and is pushing the research forward in this area. What Mike has done is going and looking at other Roman and Greek writers from the same period who do the same thing where you can find two or three accounts of the same historical incident and we see exactly as we see in the gospel, the same pattern of minor differences uh, but fitting together to tell us what happened. So I would actually see, David, those, those features in the gospels as a real sign that we're dealing with history here and not invention. So if, for those of us who are Christians, which is probably most of us this evening, but there may be guests, when we read our Bibles and we see those minor differences in the gospels, don't be afraid of them. They should give us confidence And if you're an outsider, a skeptic, or a seeker here this evening, I encourage you the same thing, to think about these are signs that actually you're dealing here with historical veracity rather than stories merely made up by men. I think one of the things there is that there are differences rather than contradictions. So, I mean, a a basic law of logic is you cannot have A being non-A. And what you don't have in the Bible is the Holy Spirit inspiring one author to say one thing and then inspiring another author to say exactly the opposite. So, for example, um, a lot of the contradictions are, that people say are contradictions are apparent contradictions. And I remember for me in the Gospels, the biggest thing was the different accounts of the resurrection, the death and resurrection. And I remember putting it on a shelf in my head and saying, okay, Lord, this is your word. I've got four different accounts. I can't put them together, but I'm sure that they, they do. And then I read um, Wenham's Easter Enigma. Yeah. And whether it's right or not, it put them all together. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that that's would right. make sense. So in, in a sense, we're trusting the Bible, not because we sit in judgment upon it, but because it's not wrong to question, but because we trust, if you like, the author. And that's, I mean, people would say that's a circular thing, but then most things are circular in one way. Yeah, I'd say, I think I'd say a couple of things uh, there, David, exactly. I mean, I think... Um, the book that David recommended there, Easter Enigma, is very good. One of the examples of that, let's take a real concrete example, mm-hmm. that in some of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, there are two angels, mm-hmm. and in others, there are, there are one angel met at the tomb. And some skeptics would say, wow, there's a contradiction there. What, is it one angel or is it two? But actually, we, have, we uh, can see that feature actually represents in everyday life, where we will, uh, there'll be multiple people in a situation, or multiple things will happen, and we simplify. A really good example, David, you had this bike accident the other day. Thank you. Didn't you? Exactly. Now, in one account of that little um, little adventure David had with the council van, um, there's a cautionary story here involving bacon rolls and cycling too fast and all kinds of things. Um, I think in one account I heard of um, the story, you fainted twice in the uh, the, uh, baker's shop. Uh, Other accounts I heard, one from your wife, was that you only fainted the once. So I could dismiss the whole thing. Um, David didn't actually have an accident. He's merely putting this sling on to get sympathy so we'll all smile at him and treat him more generously. 
Or I could say, well, when Annabelle told me David fainted, what she's doing is she's summarizing the whole sordid episode there in the uh, baker shop. Uh, and what she's doing, she's, she's uh, summarizing the bigger incident that involved multiple faintings and bacon rolls and all kinds of adventures. The tale grew in the telling, as Tolkien said. Um, and many would say that that's exactly what we see in the Gospels. Uh, when Mark tells us there is one angel there at the tomb, he's focusing on the spokesperson. The angel who does the talking. When Matthew, who fleshes things out a little bit more, he's giving you the whole picture. But two verses one, it's not a contradiction. It's a case more of a summarizing and doing a shorter version of a story. And we see that in everyday life. So many of these, uh, these differences in the Gospels, I always say to my skeptical friends, actually disappear when you give the text the benefit of the doubt in the same way that we would when I hear two versions of the bike accident, one from the uh, victim and one from the long-suffering wife. Okay. Paul. Yeah. I love David's pushing it, pushing it my way. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Paul, and one we could spend the, the whole evening on. Um, but let me, say, let me say a couple of things and then recommend a resource that, uh, that, that might help you. The first thing I think we should always be wary of doing as, as Christians is never feeling that we have to play off science and scripture. One of the things that makes me quite cross about uh, some of the so-called new atheism, the work of people like Richard Dawkins and others, is I think it's sometimes made uh, both Christians and atheists actually feel that, that God and science are irreconcilable. I don't think they are. And for us who are Christians, of course, uh, you know, I think we should, we should be fully committed to the idea that God has spoken, as it were, in two books. There's the book of scripture and the book of nature. And those shouldn't contradict one another because it's the same author. And so we shouldn't be afraid of science. And sometimes as Christians, I think we can be a bit nervous about the physical sciences because what happens if it causes us to stumble and, and have questions around scripture? Well, it shouldn't do because God is the author of both. Secondly, though, and I think this is, a, this is hugely important, I think it's very important to approach uh, scripture uh, asking the right questions. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an illustration. If I was to pick up a, you know, a map of Dundee and try and read it, as a, as a kind of fiction, as a novel, I'd get very bored very quickly. I mean, the places would be dead accurate, but the characterization, not up to much. You know, if you try and read a map as a novel, you're going to have problems. You know, if you get the menu from the local fish and chip restaurant and try and use it to unlock the human genome, you're going to do bad science. In other words, you need to use text the right way. And one of the things that's very easy to do with scripture is get that mixed up. Because, of course, as we, as we all know, well, I hope we all know, of course, the Bible is not a, a book so much as a library, right? 66 different books, 40 different authors, written over 2,000 years. And in there, you can find history and poetry and song and, and lore and genealogy. And one of the things we need to do is be sure we're reading the, book, the, the particular piece of scripture we're reading in the right ways. You know, if you try and read the Song of Solomon in the same way you read the Gospels, you're going to get confused. And I think one of the things we need to be careful of, and particularly the first few books of the Bible that tell us about origins, is what are the questions that the book of Genesis, particularly those first few chapters, is primarily addressing. And I think primarily what Genesis is designed to do is to set up the fact that God is the creator of everything, particularly in contrast to those ancient Babylonian gods who the Israelites were tempted by, who were much lower deities. I mean, it's often pointed out that uh, many of the ancient peoples around the Israelites were worshipping the sun and the moon. And when you read Genesis in that context, it's pretty polemical. Because Genesis is saying, you know, that, you know those, those things that you worship as gods? Yeah, our God made those. That's how big our God is. No, 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 no. That isn't there in the original Hebrew. I'll just stress that. Um, 
And equally, of course, Genesis is set up to tell us about the relationship that was intended between us and God, what's gone wrong, and then, of course, the whole story of Scripture from that moment on is what the, the God of the Bible, uh, the, God of, uh, the God of covenant, the God of grace, the God of love and mercy and forgiveness has done through the whole sweep of biblical history to set right what went wrong in the beginning. Now, the danger is we leap upon Genesis and go, right, origins, right? I'm going to start reading this to try and understand geology or, you know, or, or physics or any of those kind of things. Well, that wasn't what Genesis was written to do. And that's, I think, where the problem begins to, to creep in. So don't set science and scripture off with each other. Read scripture to answer the right questions and then do some broader thinking and reading about how those two go together. And the resource I'm going to recommend, uh, John Lennox, uh, who, uh, who many of you may have come across. He's uh, Oxford, from Oxford University, um, brilliant scientist, incredibly uh, dedicated follower of Christ, wrote a wonderful little book called Seven Days That Divide mm-hmm. the World. John Lennox, Seven Days That Divide the World. And they will explore, Paul, that question, I think, in detail of ways to think about how we fit the science and scripture together. And he offers you various ways you can do that. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Paul. Great question. And, Paul, one of the things there uh, with Lennox is um, he is not a theistic evolutionist. Some people are. But he's basically a guy who's saying, look, I believe the Bible, and he's also a professor of science. And that possibly carries more weight than, say, someone like me who's interested in science but doesn't know anything about it (laughs) or or doesn't have a a degree. The other thing I would say is simply this. Uh, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years and following the God of the Bible for 30 years and tied in with the first question as well. I've never found anything in the Bible that is contradictory. I found apparent contradictions and so on. But the other thing about that as well is I've never found anything that makes me look and go, oh, well, this is completely contrary to science as well. Yeah. Yes, but the point that you've raised is other people do. So they see it as being opposed, and we don't see it as opposed. I don't think we need to accommodate the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. The other resource, by the way, you you will have missed this, Andy, because you're in Canada, but um, Sinclair Ferguson did a small series of sermons on Genesis 1 to 3 here, uh, and that's on our website, and it really is just wonderful teaching what the Bible teaches about the origins, and I don't think it's contradictory to science at all. Right, does anyone else have any questions? Because I do have a couple of others, but if anyone wants to feel free. (laughs) (laughs) He's 10 years older than me. He knows everything. That's a wonderful question. Was it Alan? Yeah, repeat the question. So I think the question was, and and correct me if I I didn't hear you correctly, because the sound's a bit bad from the back. All that study that I've done, and and David and others have done, does that bring us closer to, to God? Is that... Is that question? Yeah, I'm going to be quite sort of naughty in one sense and say, and answer the question two ways and say, on the one sense, no, and in one sense, yes. What do I mean by no? Let's start with the no. The wonderful thing about the God of the Bible is you don't need to be a scholar or a theology professor or someone who studied these things deeply for, for years like, like David has done or, or I and many, many others have done. The wonderful thing about the gospel is it's breathtakingly simple. There is a God who loves us and wants relationship with us. We are alienated from him. There is nothing we can do to bridge that gap between us and him. He has done it all from his side in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can bring nothing to the party. And actually the biggest problem we have is most of us have a lot more than nothing. 
and we want to drag it into the picture. And in that sense, actually, for those of us who are intellectuals, equally those of us who have power or influence, the moment you have anything as a human being, that can become a problem. Because the tendency is that you want to kind of sort of bring it in and use it as a lever to manipulate God. Look at the Pharisees. Look at the Apostle Paul. And so in that sense, studying hasn't brought me any closer to God because I couldn't be any closer than that moment when I realized I had to bow the knee and say it's all about you, Lord, and not about me. On the other hand, what about the yes part? Well, I am, some of us here are wired as thinkers. Not all of us are. We're all wired in different ways. But myself and, and David and many others, we are wired that way. And one of the things that really excites me about the gospel is that when you push into it and, you, and when you study it, when you search the scriptures, when you look into the histories, you don't suddenly hit some sort of deep, dark hole down which you go, oh my word, I wish I never asked that question. Christianity stands on, on nothing. On the other hand, as I've studied, say, Islam and atheism and those other worldviews, you very quickly reach a point where you, you lift up the, sort of the, the foundations, as it were, and look underneath, and you see there is nothing. And I wonder how. I, I don't think I could be an intellectually fulfilled atheist or an intellectually fulfilled Muslim, knowing what I know. The joy of the gospel is you can be intellectually and emotionally and spiritually enriched by these things. God, the God of the Bible is so deep and so wide and so high, there is no question you cannot pursue that will end in disaster. And so one of the things I say to my skeptical friends, you know, I meet skeptics who are just throwing questions out because they want to be difficult. I meet skeptics who are throwing questions out because they're genuine questions. And I love the second one because I say God loves an honest searcher and you can ask those questions. And so pursuing those as I've engaged with skeptics and atheists has given me a fresh appreciation of how rich and how broad and how wide and how deep the gospel is, and it makes me go, God, you are incredible. But it hasn't, it hasn't strengthened my relationship with God because that's based on grace and the cross, and it's all about what he's done, not about what I've done. I think, Alan, as well, the important thing there is um, we have to come with a certain amount of humility. I think too often people come and say, well, God's got to answer to me. No, we answer to God. And I think the idea that someone knows it all. You are growing in wisdom when you realize how little you know. Mm. Because the more you learn, the more you realize what you don't know, but also the more wonderful and the more exciting it is. I mean, I'm, for example, I, I really like reading books, but I have to put a block now on ordering books off Amazon or anything <laughs> like that, because I've just got a whole pile, but there's just so much to learn and to understand. And I, I don't think you get closer to God because you've got a lot of mm. facts. And in that case, Google would be the most godly thing in the world. <laughs> and, it's, and it's not. You know? um, so I, I think, though, the opposite of that is Christians to go, oh, well, we don't need to learn anything. Jesus is just going to teach us. Well, yeah, he, but we use our minds. So I'm reading here, for example, in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So every Christian has to think, but that doesn't mean it's just you've all got to go and get PhDs. Um, there's a, the, the Gaelic speakers here will, I apologize for this pronunciation, but there was a, a, an elder in Lewis, a man in Lewis called Innes of Neountain, Innes of the Hills, and he's quite a character. He was illiterate, but he would often be asked questions, theological questions, and come up with amazing answers. Um, some of them were just great, and you know, I've found that there are people who are, 
who are deeply taught of the Lord, who don't have necessarily brilliant academic minds, and I found people who've got brilliant academic mm. minds who spiritually are as thick as bricks. Mm. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of balance. What you said is about being wired differently, different people. We should use our minds, but don't think that somehow we're going to get into a position where we will understand God. And the way, to the way to understand God is to be humble and to come to Christ and to give him everything, including our minds, not to kind of sit above him and say, we're going to judge, because we can't do that. Um, I mean, I find, I mean, you're obviously much younger than me, but Andy, I mean, I find as I, <laughs> as I go on, I genuinely mean this. I, I genuinely think, oh, there's so much I just don't know. But I think knowing Christ gives you enormous confidence, what you're saying at mm. the end, to reach out and research and study and look at a whole range of, of different things as well. So I study God's word, not in order mm. to question it and undermine it, but I study God's word in honor to honor, because I honor it, which I think is different. Mm. Go, I'll take one more question, then I've, I've, I've got one for Andy, just if anyone else wants to ask before. Oh. Yeah, it's, go on. There's, we one have of, two, okay. there's one over here as well. Alina's question, if you didn't all, all catch it at the back, was um, obviously I've been, I've been studying kind of Islam for quite a while, and the, perhaps the biggest difference between Islam and Christianity is all around who Jesus is. What I actually do, actually, I just very quickly flesh that out slightly, Alina, and say I think the biggest difference between Christianity and every other belief system or worldview is who is Jesus? Is he just a prophet, as our Muslim friends would say? Is he some kind of sort of uh, avatar, as my Hindu friends would say? Uh, is he just someone who perfectly espoused the Buddha consciousness, as my friend who is a, a Buddhist monk in Toronto beautifully put it? Or did he not exist, as some of my atheist friends would claim? It all comes down to who Jesus is. And, of course, that's the gospel. You know, Mark, in Mark's gospel, right in the center of Mark's gospel, remember the, the little scene where, you know, the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, and Jesus asks them, who do the crowds think that I am? And the disciples give all these different answers. And then Jesus looks at them and probably smiles and says, who do you say that I am? And I think our answer to that question is the gospel. Do we say you're Lord and Christ, or do we throw something else in there? So, but your more specific point, how do we address this with, with Muslims? I think there are, there are a number of, of ways. Firstly, I want to do it through respect and dialogue. I think we need to be careful with our Muslim friends not to come in sort of all guns blazing and try and go like this, because then the barriers go right up. What I want to do with my Muslim friends is demonstrate the attractiveness of Jesus. That's the first thing. Because many Muslims will tell you they love Jesus. So I, always, I often want to begin there and really talk about what he means to me and, uh, and also find ways of introducing scripture and some of the stories of, of what Jesus does in the Gospels because the Quran doesn't tell you much about Jesus. And I've actually found many Muslims are quite open to you telling accounts of some of the miracles, telling some of his parables, draw, uh, paint his attractiveness. Because it's as they find Jesus attractive, then you can do the next step. And one of the things I like to do is two things. Set up a, a contrast between Jesus and Muhammad and show the difference. And then when you have to, you don't always have to, but sometimes you have to, then address the question of how do we know who the real Jesus is? And then we're faced with the question of do I trust the Quran that was written 600 years after the events by people who are not eyewitnesses, who have no connection to them? And in fact, where we can test the Quran it falls down. So, for example, the Quran denies that Jesus was crucified. Yet even secular historians will tell you 
that the overwhelming evidence is that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Although I trust the Gospels that were written by the eyewitnesses within decades of his, his life and have always been affirmed and held and transmitted by the church. But it's that contrast between Jesus and Muhammad I want to draw out. And there's a number of ways we can do that. Let me tell you just one story. I'm not saying go and copy this, but let me illustrate one of the ways you can do it. I've got a friend of mine um, who, um, who runs a network of, uh, of, Mus- of, of apologists, evangelists in Pakistan. It's pretty dangerous work. In fact, I won't even mention his, his name because this may be being recorded and I don't know where it will go. But um, he told me the story a couple of years ago when, we, when I last saw him of a new evangelistic technique he was using in Pakistan to great effect. He would go into a coffee shop in Lahore or wherever, and he'd simply sit down and drink coffee. And he said, eventually, a Muslim will come and sit opposite me and start talking. He looked at me, he went, unlike you British people, we are sociable and friendly in the Middle East. Very true. We're just frigid and unfriendly. Um, never do that joke again, either. Um, Anyway, he said, we'll talk for an hour or two about our families and our lives, uh, because that's the, the way the culture works. And then he said, here's the, what I do. I just wait until an apparently random moment, then I look across the table, and I go, the problem with you, my friend, is you are a sinner. He said, invariably, my Muslim friend will bang the table and go, I am not a sinner. And then my friend would say, wow, I have, I have met a Muslim who is even holier than Muhammad himself. And the Muslim will usually go, well, what do you mean? Well, my friend, Muhammad sinned. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Would you like me to show you from the Hadith and the Muslim histories where Muhammad sinned? And then he'll open up the scriptures, the Muslim histories, and show where Muhammad sinned. It's, it's well known. Muhammad admitted he, uh, he was a sinner. He prayed for repentance. Then his Muslim friend will usually say, well, maybe I, maybe, maybe I, am, I am a sinner then. Uh, can you say that more loudly, my friend? Maybe I am a sinner. Wonderful. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner, Muhammad is a sinner. Now, my friend, can you think of somebody who is sinless? Because we clearly need somebody who is sinless who can help us. Only one person is affirmed in the Muslim scriptures and traditions themselves as being sinless, and that is Jesus. And my friend said the moment that he wants the Muslim to say, well, Jesus, now we can have a conversation. Because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, even Muhammad was a sinner. If we're all sinking in this mud of sin, we need somebody who is standing outside it to pull us out. Maybe we need to take a fresh look at Jesus, who by, from your own lips, you admitted is the, is the truly sinless one. Mm-hmm. And that conversation has led, my friend, to lead many, many Muslims in Pakistan to Christ. So ultimately, bring out the difference between Jesus and Muhammad. One was a sinner like you and I. One was sinless and could help us overcome that problem of sin. Okay, last question. There was someone over here. Was, was a it? hand over on the... Yeah. What was your name? Rebecca. Rebecca was asking, we would have said it would have been great for her you know, to have brought some skeptical friends uh, this evening to hear the talk. Um, and how do we start these kind of conversations with our skeptical friends? Let me say a couple of things. And then, and then David, I mean, you should say a couple of things here because you've, yeah. you've uh, you know, built a ministry around doing this. A um, couple of things I, I like to do. Firstly, if you're, if you're skeptical, it depends on whether your skeptical friends are sort of having these conversations with you or if they're not. If they're not, you need to provoke them. And I just like saying sort of, you know, sort of outlandish, controversial things sometimes, and just seeing if it gets a reaction. So just find something that works for you to poke them a little bit is a good way. Once they start asking questions, Rebecca, then what I like to do, don't leap straight in with a, with a sermon, push back on their skepticism. 
So, for example, when someone says to me, oh, I don't believe the Bible, it's a load of rubbish, don't go immediately to, oh, I heard this sermon on Sunday night, or oh, here's a book you can read. It's great to say things like, that's interesting, tell me why. What's your, what's your evidence that the Bible is unreliable? You see, the two most powerful questions we can use as Christians are, why do you think that, and uh, what do you mean by that? So when they say the Bible is unreliable, you know, ask them to flesh out what they mean, but then ask them what their evidence is. One of two things will happen. Either they will have something in mind, and they'll bring up an example, maybe one of those differences in the resurrection accounts that David talked about. And now you can deal with a specific issue, or they'll sort of have to fumblingly admit they don't know, and what they're doing is recycling a kind of secondhand skepticism. And you should never really live, live your life on someone else's secondhand opinions. Um, Either way, that then enables you to say, well, you've raised a particular issue. Would you be interested in, in an answer to that question? Because either you have one, or you can say, look, I'll go and find you one. Or, hey, why don't you come along and listen? We've got a, a talk at church on Sunday with Q&A afterwards. Why don't you come and ask that question to, uh, to Andy or to David or to whoever it is? And if they are resistant, then sometimes I think we stop too quickly. I think gently but firmly take the next step and say, look, with respect, if that question is really a genuine question, then surely you'd want to pursue an answer. If you are just using that question as a way of throwing dust in the way so you don't have to deal with, with God, then I put it to you, you might want to think very, very carefully. Because if there were a God, and if the gospel were true, that would be an incredibly foolish thing to do, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? But God loves an honest skeptic. Jesus said, those who search will find. So if that question is genuine, come along and ask it. If it's not, tell me what's really going on. That's sort of the, the way I would, I, would, I would play with it. But don't be afraid to call people out on using skepticism as a defense mechanism not to address the gospel. Because we forget the gospel is frightening. See, so if the gospel is true, there are things that follow. And one of them is that you have to recognize that you are not Lord of your own life, but he is. And many people will do anything they can rather than face up to the consequences of yeah. that, I think, at times. I think also you'll get pushback and prejudice as well. Um, one of the things I would simply say is uh, your life should provoke mm. questions. So it's First Peter 3, always be ready to give a reason and answer for the hope that you have, which means that people are going to ask questions. And that can be a long-term thing. We're looking for very instant things. I just think you live as a Christian amongst people and you provoke questions by your life. But you can also provoke questions, as Andy's saying, in conversation. And I would suggest, I mean, we don't do this every Sunday evening, but we'll do it occasionally. When it's done, it's done specifically so that you can take the opportunity to invite non-Christian friends along. And, and I would encourage you to do that. Also to use things like Life Explored, again, when your church offers that. I find one of the most amazing things is... You say to people, people say, I'm not interested in Christianity. Do you know anything about it? Not really, but I'm not interested. Come along to church. Oh, you're just trying to get me. No, not trying to get you at all, but want you to come and see and find out for yourself. And just encouraging people's curiosity, that helps. I have to say, if people in the pew or the chairs are confident about the gospel and confident about the church in which they're in, you will find that non-Christians come because people in the pew invite them. And I think we need to be challenged in that. Um, Andy, thank you so much for that. I'm going to ask the band to come up just so that we can finish. Uh, I was asked a question which I'll answer very briefly. Um, why doesn't Jesus talk to us today? He does.
That's the point. This is the living and enduring Word of God. We're not studying this as a history document. We believe it is history. We, be- <coughs> we believe that it, you know, it's poetry and everything else, but it's the living Word of God to us. And I think one of the problems in Scotland today is you get people, even Christians, say, well, that's the Bible. Now we want a word from the Lord. But this is the word from the Lord. And the most amazing thing for me Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.